Uh, what's up, everyone? Um, this is a space to talk about um, secret machines, specifically the um, the fiction ones. Um, I personally use them, uh, will have used them as a kind of jumping off point for a lot of my research. Um, there's kind of a lot of stuff in there that I, like when I first read them, I, I was kind of late and I figured like everyone had read them, um, the, the two fiction books. And then, uh, I actually like read them and, uh, I kind of, they were long, so I didn't, I kind of skimmed through them, but then, uh, I went, you know, back through them when I had some free time and there, there's a ton of shit in there that like, I, uh, I didn't realize the first time through. So I think it's, it would be fun to just kind of go through, um, and kind of maybe pick out some stuff that we might think is true or not true, but like that might check out with, uh, you know, stuff we've learned since, since they came out. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, it's kind of the first, the first book is, is pretty nuts and bolts. Um, it's, you know, deals with, there's going to be some, well, this whole thing's pretty much going to be spoilers. So sorry, <laughs> but it'll be more, uh, more of the details, um, rather than the, like the story. Uh, so you can still read it for the story, I guess, if you, you know, if you, I suggest reading them, you know, there's, there's just a ton of shit in there. Um, Garrett, you want to say anything before we start? Just kind of, yo. Everybody in this room, thank you so much for taking the time out of your night to listen to us talk about this type of stuff. Um, I want to say for me personally, this is like awesome because I get to talk about UFOs with a guy that literally I didn't realize this, but like I come to find out I've been reading this guy's post for years um, since he's been on Reddit and it's literally gotten me through so many days and like inspired me to read so many of these books. And when I came in to reading about UFOs, I was really into politics and history and JFK. And the more I read about JFK, the more it crossed over with these types of subjects. And I kept stumbling upon Klaus's posts. And it's a very grim feeling because a lot of like, if you do follow JFK, a lot of the things that intercede with JFK I mean, if there was a conspiracy, it kind of intercedes with what we're reading about in Secret Machines. So I'm like stoked that we get to talk about this tonight. Um, anyone who knows me, I post about this stuff constantly. I'm constantly posting clips from books. I'm a huge reader of Valet and Keel um, and Peter Lavenda. He's my probably my favorite living author right now, and I'm a huge fan of all his books. Um, so it's interesting to see what these To The Stars Academy guys have said what they've like put their names behind and who they're associating with. It's like a lot of brave, bold statements being made in these books. So like, let's tackle a couple of them. I'm excited. All right. Yeah. Um, I don't really have an agenda though. So, <laughs> um, let's start, I guess. I don't know. So just kind of a summary, the books are kind of laid out. There's a bunch of different characters, uh, and their stories all kind of intertwine. Um, you have uh, Alan, who is um, a pilot, and uh, he's basically the book kind of starts out with him in the Middle East uh, during he's 
a flying mission, um, and he's uh, I guess covering uh, for the for the troops on the ground. Um, and then he encounters a UFO, and um, essentially it, it shuts down his weapon system uh, in his in his uh, you know fighter. And um, that's kind of how you're introduced to him. Then he goes on to um, since, at, since he you know finds out about the UFOs, they recruit him into the program. Uh, you know, and, and he goes to you know Area 51, which in the book they call Dreamland, and um, he essentially trains to fly these uh, TR3Bs, which which they refer to as locusts in the book. Um, so that's kind of his story arc. And then there's um, this, uh, I guess she's an heiress of a um, like her father is like a um, what is he? He basically is is a super rich guy, and uh, he's British, and um, he works for this company called the Maynard, the Maynard Consortium, and they're basically like a big, um, like a big, you know, conglomerate, international conglomerate with, uh, you know, uh, their hands in like everything, uh, basically, kind of like the Carlyle Group. I think I think it's based on. You know, something like that, at least. It might be specifically the Carlisle Group, but there's a few uh, candidates for that. Um, but essentially, uh, Jennifer is is this guy's daughter, and and they they basically assassinated her father. Um, and uh, he and he's basically he was involved in in these aerospace uh, initiatives where they were funneling money into um, these aerospace programs like all over the world. And uh, it's kind of like ties in with the breakaway civilization um, kind of theory where there's an international, kind of like Robert Salas said the other day, um, where he was talking about an international cabal of, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, government and private, um, you know, military and, and business interests that, that are, covering this up, you know, on an international level. Uh, and then this kind of ties in as well with Operation Paperclip because of the heads of the board of this company, our consortium, the Maynard Consortium, um, are ex-Nazis. And it kind of goes back into, uh, essentially, essentially it explains how they got there um, with... A journal, oh God, it's so hard to like tie this all this shit together. <laughs> it's hard enough to do it in the book, but um, yeah, Garrett, if you wanna, if you wanna take over, I gotta like my brain's a little. I think you've done a wonderful job <laughs> of explaining a lot of the, the details of this book. Uh, I tough. was, I was trying to write giant takeaways from each of these books because so far for those of you who don't know there's been four secret machines books total so far two fiction two non-fiction and klaus is laying out the fiction ones very well the fiction ones are based on um real events aj hartley said in the past he's like i don't feel like i'm writing anything untrue in these books um, the biggest takeaway I had from the first one with Alan and the uh, aerospace companies was, uh, A, the way it closed. He was speaking with this high, high up defense guy and he's saying, um, uh, are you saying that the Greek gods or the people or that we, the characters we know as the Greek gods left their equipment or their technology on Earth 
and we're finding it and we're using it essentially. And then he says, uh, who says that they ever left implying that what we're dealing with now connects into our ancient past. Um, and he also connects these companies like SAIC, who Tom has known in the past for saying that the in front of this defense contractor, the sixth largest defense contractor in the country, there's two Atlanteans uh, or Egyptians holding tetrahedrons. One says past, one says future. Um, Tom DeLong kind of like ties all of that into secret machines, right? Um, the biggest takeaway I had from that, though, is that A, he says that the Greek gods or what, what we know is the Greek gods existed, um, which is huge. That's a huge takeaway. Uh, uh, another takeaway is our, our history as human beings isn't what we uh, like understand it to be. It seems like human beings are a lot older and a lot more complicated than we understand. Um and then the other one is that secretive, uh, okay, so if these things are crashing and we're finding them, there is now this secretive arms race going on that countries are having crashes and not wanting to tell other countries about it now. Or our defense contractors are getting a leg up on each other, and that might be a very, very corrupt business because now we have people essentially, they could be potentially bribing each other, killing each other. Um, it, it's... It, 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 it it begs the question why so many people have committed suicide or why so many people have been killed over this topic. Because if if it was all hunky dory, you wouldn't need to have all of this veil veily like shadowy group cabal type stuff and activity. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the those are my biggest takeaways from the first book was his conversation saying that the Greek gods existed and that we're finding their technology and uh, fighting over it. Um, yeah, what do you think of that? Yeah, and then um, another huge part of it is um, like a yeah, like I was saying, they essentially part of. So the book kind of goes, and each chapter goes to a different character, and there's like six of them. And one of the characters is called is a is a man called Jersey, and and essentially all of his chapters are entries in a journal that he kept uh, back from you know starting in 1945 during the war. He was he was a Jew, and uh, you know was forced into concentration camp labor, um, and was basically um kind of forced to work on these programs where there was like you know anti-gravity vehicles you know the nazi bell was kind of like a kind of like a well-known um subjects you know within ufo lore uh so he he basically is working in the um you know the constant concentration camp where they're developing this this anti-gravity craft and not the what i don't know how to pronounce a d-glock or or something like that and they're they're testing the effects on people in the camp and it's 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 super fucked up um obviously and uh it kind of goes from there and his he he escapes and um he makes it i think he makes it to america um arrives at ellis island and then he's recruited uh in the navy and essentially he goes through all the stuff that leads up to operation paperclip um so kind of the the ufo lore of all that stuff like he he first he goes to argentina um you know with 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 his navy 
um, with the Navy, basically, and they, they basically go to root out Nazis in Argentina, and then they find out, you know, they've gone to Antarctica. So there's this whole battle scene in Antarctica, basically, where, um, you know, the Nazis set up a base there before the war, um, and they were developing, you know, this UFO technology down in Antarctica, and um, they, you know, and, and the kind of, and they find, um, sorry, let me, let me backtrack. So they, the, the U.S. Navy basically goes and they, they take them out um, down in Antarctica, but they take, you know, people back from there alive. And what uh, the other thing they grab from there is it's basically uh, materials from, um, it, you know, UFO materials are also taken from down there and brought back to America. Um, so there's a lot of, like, kind of, the Operation Paperclip um, story story throughout there, and uh, it's pretty interesting how he how he goes through it, and um, uh, just just kind of the dialogue and shit that they do is is pretty wild, and uh, yeah, it's essentially it's essentially that material, it's, and they match it up as the same, and I think they don't really do Roswell, do they? Yeah, Garrett, go ahead. So. You did a pretty good job of laying out a uh, paperclip and uh, that Antarctica trip. But I just want to kind of lay out a couple things, because if you're interested in UFOs, undoubtedly you've heard about Operation High Jump, which was this operation that uh, Rear Admiral Richard Byrd led. And it was an expedition to Antarctica. He brought thousands of troops over there. It was very bizarre. It was in 1946, and World War II had just ended. And people were like, even at the time in the newspapers, people were like, what's going on down there? Like, why why are they sending so many people down there? Um, and nowadays, you hear all sorts of stories. You hear that he went into the hollow earth, and you hear that he met crypto terrestrials, or you name it. And there's all sorts of nonsense surrounding it. And uh, a great researcher on that is Peter Lavenda, one of the guys I mentioned before. He's a huge researcher on where these guys went after World War II. And it turns out, as Klaus explained, like some of these guys did bring that Bell technology and apparently some sort of disk technology over to Antarctica. And in Secret Machines, it lays out that when Admiral Byrd is leading his men down there, that they're f seeing all these fucking disks flying around insanely in, in, in f with physics that they have never seen before. Um, the, the, they come over and they are shooting down these disks and eventually take them out. And they say that eventually when the disks dropped, he said that they got the men to surrender fairly quickly. Um, and it said that it was just a, a shell of what was once this like impressive army. And it was these men trying to like make this high technology in this like strange perverted dream that they had in their head of what they were going to win this war like come true. And it just wasn't happening. And America whooped their ass and we took their men, and eventually we kept recruiting their men, which was these programs like Operation Paperclip. Um, and for those of you who haven't seen Peter Lavenda's presentation uh, in Amsterdam, where he talks about the secret space program and the loyalties of these men and how he's found out about like the research that they were doing after World War II ended, um, it's very... Uh, 
disturbing. And uh, so, yeah, apparently that gave light to uh, and and to this day, what what happened in Admiral Byrd's uh, Operation High Jump is classified. But Secret Machines kind of gives you a peek behind the scenes of what was going on down there. It wasn't some giant mega fortress or some like uh, Shambhala or Shangri-La. It was like truly just them trying to salvage this technology that they had developed. They were trying to start some breakaway thing and keep it going. And it seemed like it was a successful mission is the way I would like describe it. Um, But they still had to deal with like the problem with that. How do you report this to the American public who's been celebrating the fact that this war is over, you know? Yeah. And there was something I actually noticed that, that's actually interesting because because Admiral Byrd, yeah, I forgot to mention that that whole Antarctic thing was fucking Operation Hijack. But uh, yeah, Admiral Byrd, um, you know, on the way back to America after this, uh, he stopped in Argentina um, and gave you know a uh, an interview to what was it uh, El Mercurio uh, or it was it was Chile. Um, he gave an interview to a Chilean newspaper. Um, and essentially said, I'll, I'll read it. It's quickly. It's kind of, it's famous. I'm sure a lot of you guys know it already, but, um, uh, the article says Admiral Richard Ebert warned today that the United States should adopt measures of protection against the possibility of an invasion of the country by hostile planes coming from the polar regions. The admiral, the admiral explained that he was not trying to scare anyone, but the cruel reality is that in case of a new war, the United States could be attacked by planes flying over one or both poles. So that that is from Wikipedia. But I noticed in Secret Machines where, so that sentence, um, the United States could be attacked by planes flying over one or both poles. In Secret Machines, it says um, the United States could be attacked by planes flying over one or both poles at incredible speed. So I'm not sure if that, was edited out of Wikipedia or something? Do you know, Garrett? Because the incredible yeah, speed the part quote, is... See, the thing is, is the quote was given in Spanish. So I think that anything that we're saying is a translation. So it depends on how you directly translate what Bird said. Um, I, I'm trying to find the clipping of where it says in Spanish and just kind of post that. Um, so just people could read it for themselves. But the, as the, I remember the quote read to me was like, he warned of craft that were able to fly from pole to pole at tremendous speeds. That was the the line that was burned into my brain. Um, because something about Admiral Byrd was like, he was a badass dude. Like Admiral Byrd was there when the Japanese surrendered. He was one of the American representatives there as they were signing those papers. Um, and he had also, it's not just that he had like done other, uh, he was known for doing like polar expeditions. If you study Richard Byrd, it's not just that he did the one time trip to, uh, uh, Operation High Jump. He had done trips to the North Pole. He had done other trips with Germany um, before World War II had started, or before they had found out the atrocities that were going on in Germany in World War II. Um, so he was just a very impressive individual, and he was very involved with how World War II was like unfolding towards the very end. Um, so it's just very curious to me that like. All of that is still classified, and all we have is that one little quote from him. But even that one quote 
is just it's very thought provoking because like what else would have been in these skies what else could be flying pole to pole at tremendous speeds um it just begs the question of how advanced they developed this tech yeah and another another interesting thing um so the materials that uh that that character jersey uh took from from antarctica um essentially i think his his daughter was in a nursing home and um one of the characters went to track her down and uh her, his daughter had had the materials uh like he had given it to her and essentially it says um it came from los alamos and um it it <laughs> What does it say? I, feeling the warmth yeah. ripple around the metal fragment as if as if blood surged within it, like it's alive. So they're essentially saying this is kind of, you know, a lot of people. I, I don't know who specifically, but there's a general kind of, uh, you know, idea that these crafts are seem biological in um, in appearance, or at least you know how they behave. The materials. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that was a, that was the. That was the memory foil. Uh, I think it's Katarina Pendergast. Um, I think that was from Roswell, though. Is is the whole story behind it? I think. It yeah, was yeah, that was the Roswell stuff. Desert. But I mean, how much of this do y'all think is real? Because it is a fiction series. But I mean, you can verify high jump. You can verify paperclip. There's a lot of lore around the the Dagalaka and and the German Bell and all that. Um, I don't know. I just I wonder how much of this book is real, and sometimes I think all of it. Other times I think just some of it. It's tough to say. It's it, because you don't ever want to push all your chips in any which way, you know. Um, but the thing that I respect about it is, is that the, a big reason that Tom DeLonge said that he wanted to write these books in the first place was because of that exact reason that there's so much garbage in ufology and there's so many like false paths and rabbit holes that people spend years in and people get shaken up by the littlest things and personal attacks. And we need to be able to like really get our crosshairs set on something that we can actually tackle. Um, the fact that world war two may not have ended the way we think that it ended. I think that alone is a very interesting statement. And that's a very like disturbing statement, but it also gives us something that we can look for as a community that we can hold our public officials accountable and not let them skirt by on these foggy videos and excuses. Like these are actual things that I feel like historically have some sort of precedent. Like the, the MK ultra things would have never came out unless like honest people saw what was going on and we're like, yo, we need to hold our elected officials accountable and let's like actually get these people prosecuted, prosecuted because crimes have been committed here. And I'm getting a similar vibe as that, you know, like, uh, regardless of the hundred percent of the book is true. Even if 50% of it is true, that other 50% is the Greek gods are leaving their technology. 
And that's, that is also something that we should be asking about is like, if that's the case and, and we're having that happen, why aren't we hearing about it? Like, why has nobody heard about that's as a human being? That's very disturbing that we're keeping these secrets from each other. We feel that like only a select class of people get to know those secrets. So I, I, I like Tom DeLonge's effort that he wanted to clear up a lot of the fog and bullshit and baloney that was in this. And as it's been lately, I don't, I don't think these guys because of their security clearances are allowed to say like, yes, X, Y, and Z is true. Um, but they can do everything they can to try to tell us everything but that. And I think that's what the role of secret machines was, was like, listen, we can't tell you everything. We're not allowed to tell you everything, but look at who we're associating with and look at what our story is so far and stack it up next to this Gaia bullshit that we're being pumped and tell us what you think as an informed populace. Like, do you believe David Wilcock or do you believe the uh, former head of the skunk works that's talking to you and telling you these facts, you know? Yeah, and I think it yeah, it definitely gives us, you know, something to to think about and or just to keep in the back of our heads as we see things develop and you know, up to the current day. That's kind of what I use it for is like, hmm, that that kind of resonates with with what, you know, the certain part of the book. And uh that seems to be happening um more and more. And it, especially kind of the whole the whole you know, Nazi ideology after World War II. Like, the, you know, the Germans were defeated. The ideology of, of Nazis wasn't. Because we brought them back here, and it, it kind of, you know... And it, it really kind of brings back... Because Tom uh, pulls a lot of stuff from Nick, Nick Cook's book, The Hunt for Zero Point. Um, and he it, it's basically... You know, we brought we brought these Nazis over, and they they basically ran our space program, and they had a different kind of way of looking at science um, than the West. They didn't, you know, they rejected Einsteinian physics. Um, they they thought about it differently. And uh, in the Hunt for Zero Point, Nick Cook, uh, one of his sources is um, you know high up high up aerospace engineer, and he essentially or executive, and he essentially says, you know, this this technology and developing it um, brings along, you know, a fascist ideology with it. And it, it kind of infected, you know, our, our black projects basically. Um, and that's kind of, I think the mentality of, of the secrecy and um, it all, it, it, it's all just kind of the same thing as it was back then. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't really understand the extent of what was really going on after World War II, based on the literature that is available, um, we do know that thousands of Nazis were granted immunity and were given comfortable jobs working. And the, the, remember, the uh, space program didn't develop until the 60s or so. So after World War II in the late 40s, a lot of these men came over to America and they joined what was our early rocketry programs in our Air Force and our aviation medicine programs. So if you look into a lot of those early military programs, you'll see a lot of those German names popping up around those years. 
um, that eventually blossomed into what we know what the NASA and Apollo rocket programs, the moon missions. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Warner von Braun, the, the father of our, our moon missions and the head of the Apollo programs, he was unfortunately uh, an SS officer. And uh, as Peter Lavendez said in the past is like, you don't just become an SS officer, um, which is a very dark statement. You earn that. And uh, so they let men who have done horrible atrocities like in at what cost. And uh, apparently in these early rocket programs, like is it one of the earliest programs that they developed was the V2 rocket. Right. And uh, according to Peter Lavenda and uh, Joseph P. Farrell, who have written a lot about this, Joseph P. Farrell wrote a book called Roswell and the Reich. Uh, Peter Lavender wrote a great book called Unholy Alliance that I recommend to everybody. Um, Essentially, though, in the early tests of this V2 rocket, um, Peter Lavender says that literature has been been uncovered that says that these men don't seem to have been loyal to the United States all the way. He said that one of the V2 launches went awry and landed and blasted a 40-foot crater in Juarez, Mexico. And our government had to explain it to the government of Juarez, Mexico, why this rogue missile had fired off on them. And apparently, a lot of these men were writing letters to the Pentagon saying, these men aren't on our side. Like, what are you doing letting these madmen run these rocketry programs? Apparently, one V2, according to these books, one V2 rocket was just discovered and picked up by them, these men, and just like it, it, it didn't detonate. They were meant to be detonated if you're not able to recover them. It was never detonated and it was just allowed to be scooped up. And come to find out, the more you talk about it and the more the Secret Machines book explain it, is they had these like communes set up in South America and had been developing them for quite a long time. And it seemed like a lot of that technology started getting moved down there at the end of World War II. A lot of those engineers that were working on that disc-shaped technology, like the Horton brothers, they were in Argentina at the end of World War II, and our government was looking for them. Um, It was just very dark. Yeah. Uh, Another, (laughs) I guess, dark thing. Um, There's a really interesting, uh, I guess, scene um, in the in the book that that I it made me think um, and and Tom kind of says like you know it he he says it's always like the third thing right it's never what they tell you and it's never what the cover up seems like it's always something further than that so and it, and it's kind of like like with Roswell it wasn't a weather balloon and it wasn't alien technology and he basically says it's nazi technology but i'm not going to go into that um but this other thing kind of runs into that this um uh journalist uh she works for you know a debunker website um and she's part it's further on in the story but uh she's driving in pennsylvania and kind of on the run i think i don't remember specifically but she sees a light over her car and she basically essentially gets abducted. Um, so she wakes up in, you know, it's, it's the classic kind of abduction scenario. She's on a table. 
Um, these beings are talking to her telepathically. Um, you know, they're doing experiments on her, and you know, she she's in a spaceship, basically being experimented on. Um, but <laughs> as as she kind of comes to, uh, she realizes that they're you know these aliens are basically it's a costume. She sees a zipper, and it's 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 essentially a mylab. But these, but they're all dressed up as you know aliens, and um, they were Russians. I think. I think she ended up when she she escaped. You know, um, she escaped. She like you know kicked kicked the alien quote unquote, and uh, went outside. Like got outside, and she's basically in Siberia in this in this Russian uh, Russian base. So so they're basically faking alien abductions with costumes and all this shit. And if that's real, that's pretty fucking nuts. Well, you know, there's a lot of material um, where ufologists have suspected MK Ultra playing a role in abduction experiences where, where it's the government taking people and either drugging them or using some sort of psi weapon or hypnosis to make them think Basically, they're they're putting screen memories in their head, so they think that they were abducted, which is uh, a little more elaborate in the setup where where Tamika was abducted, but still essentially the same thing, and it, it kind of falls in line with um, with the book, I guess. Yeah, John Alexander ad- admitted that recently that they successfully implanted false memories of alien abduction in you know their, co- their colleague, I believe. And they, and the interesting thing about that is, is he said they did it because abductions were all they were popular, or so, he said something like that at the time that you know abductions were in the news or something. So that's why they attempted to implant a uh, you know abduction memory, which which makes it even more fucking confusing because <laughs> I mean clearly abductions were happening for them to be able to like come up with the idea to implant a false memory about it. Um, but yeah, uh, Garrett, you got anything else? Yeah. Um, just, I just, so we're not breezing by that name, John Alexander, just so he, people know who that is. It's a very impressive individual. He's a Lieutenant Colonel or a former Lieutenant Colonel. I believe he's retired now, but he was the former head of non-lethal weapons for Los Alamos laboratory for years and um, all throughout the 80s, he was also closely involved with the guys that ran Project Stargate. He worked very closely with Albert Stubblebine. Um, but there is this air uh, around John Alexander of mystery because he also did a lot of work um, with Robert Bigelow and National Institute of Discovery Science. And a lot of like what we learned about in Brazil about UFOs is classified to this day. What what Robert Bigelow learned with that company and that team of academics is still classified to this day. And if people look up for themselves who was on those teams, um, it's names that we recognize that we're reading their books every day. And unfortunately, they don't get to come forward and talk about these things. So, like, I'm very excited in light of recent news, like, the fact that potentially whistleblowers that have worked on these crash retrieval programs are potentially getting protections now and are coming forward and are brave enough to come forward against these like supposedly sinister forces. I find it very brave and I like hope that keeps coming. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Oh, one other one other thing about the fake abduction thing. For, for, for the telepathic uh, voice, she basically had an earbud in her ear. <laughs> so, yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, yeah. What, what else is in your notes, Garrett? Uh, and I skipped a bunch of shit. Well, I kind of wanted to talk about things Tom DeLonge has said about the phenomenon and then kind of tie that into a fire within and the competing consciousnesses that we're seeing. What do you think of that? So we're going, yeah, we're, the second book. Yeah, we're going to ruin everything for you. It's, the second book is, is my favorite. It's fucking, it's so good. <laughs> That's Because the first book is very nuts and bolts, but the second one goes like full fucking woo. Uh, to the point where it's like really confusing at first. But, but if you go back and read it a few times, you kind of tie it together. But yeah, I'm down. <laughs> Yeah, a couple things about A Fire Within is we get to hear how the craft flies, how Alan's craft flies. That's one of the things that we can discuss. Um, another thing, a huge thing that we can discuss is the appearance of what seems to be competing consciousnesses on this planet. Um, and they kind of lay out a couple different scenarios of how psychologically and sociologically different interactions with what we've termed the others have changed the way the course of how human beings act and it's something that i'm real interested in because tom DeLong, I'll, I'll i'll admit for a very long time i didn't really put much thought into ufos um tom DeLong came on joe rogan years ago right right as he was founding uh to the stars academy and he came on joe rogan and I remember watching it very early in the morning. I ju- it just came out the day before, and I listened to the whole thing. I was laughing at him because he was just—he sounded like a maniac. Like everything he was saying, he was like, "I can't tell you that." Oh, well, this this guy—he's—I'm he, telling you, man, he's, he's going to come forward, and I'm, I'm telling you, man. And like it was just it, a lot of what he was saying just sounded like baloney. And then a couple years went by, and he everything he said started holding water like in a big way and respectable people were coming forward and were joining his company and were saying positive things about him. And the more I listened to Tom, he sounded educated. Like he sounded like he had done his homework on this stuff in a lot of ways. And people like to just kind of peg him down that he's a rock star. Um, and it always drives me nuts because at this point he's in a researcher who has 20, 30 years in the field. And I think that people don't think about it that way. They hate to say that. They would rather just say, oh, he's a rock star. Well, he's been researching this for a very long time. And the people that are associated with him are not traitors, in my opinion, as much as the, these misleading journalists like to make us think that they are and that this is a big disinformation project. Um, I don't think that's what's going on. Uh, so something Tom DeLong and, and people are welcome to make their own conclusions and listen to what these men have said. Um, but one of the main narratives that DeLong has, has presented to people is that there's not only competing consciousnesses, but he calls them gods with a little G. Um, he's used the term ultra terrestrials before. Um, and he kind of tries to lay it out how long they've been with us throughout our history. 
Um, and I'm going to try not to get very dogmatic about any of this because I'll tell you all of you just up front, I'm not a non-believer or I am a non-believer. So like, I don't really carry any faith with me. I don't, I don't have a belief system that I'm really clinging to. I'm just kind of gathering the information and seeing what these people have said. You guys are welcome to make your own conclusions. Okay. Um, I'm going to read you guys a quote and then we can start talking about the secret machines, but this is from Tom DeLonge. And this is something he said about what he calls the others or the gods with the little G. He says, there are good gods and bad gods. Their interactions with humanity has been well documented all the way back through Greek myth and even further back into the Sumerian legends that are out here. Those stories are true from the perspective of those who wrote them. They differ in different areas of the world a little bit. You know, they call their gods different names or they side with different gods. But the idea right now, we have three monotheistic faiths. The rivalry between them is by design, period. Mankind has created the religions, but the stories are very important. The stories are saying something, and they are all saying the same thing about a bunch of people that came here from somewhere else. And yes, there is a group that's trying to deceive mankind. There's another part of it that doesn't feel that way about man. And I'll end the quote there. But that's kind of an outline of what we're dealing with here. Of uh, he, he calls this very old and something that has been with human beings for a very long time. Um, and yeah, I'll kind of hand it back to you, Klaus. Yeah, man, it's <laughs> it's it's fucking crazy. Um, but yeah, the second the second book essentially is uh, uh, has a lot to do with consciousness and kind of that's basically how how you fly the craft. Um, it doesn't get like too into uh, too into detail like mechanically, but um, yeah. It, so there's. There's a consciousness on Earth he basically describes as the swarm. And um, it, it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what it is physically, um, which kind of makes me wonder, like when Gary Nolan said, you know, UFOs are a form of consciousness. It, it, it kind of makes me think of, think of this swarm thing, at least, you know, one of the factions, if you want to call it that. Um, and it kind of... Uh, it, it's kind of a, a telepathic thing that like shows up in people's minds and um, it, it essentially like reflects kind of culture uh, back at you. Um, it can take, take the form of, you know, fairies and that, and that kind of thing. And uh, it, yeah, it kind of ingrains itself in like human, um, you know, human lore, essentially um, like folklore. And, um, it also kind of reminds me, like, uh, Gary Nolan said something like, um, you know, if, if the, the phenomenon interacts with us, like, you know, back, like, go back to pre, you know, prehistory, and maybe it would show itself as spirits in the forest, um, and then you become a little more civilized, and then it shows shows itself as gods, like little, little G gods, like Tom said, and then, you know, we don't we don't really believe in God anymore. So now it shows itself as a form of technology. Um, so, cause we believe in technology. That's like what our civilization is basically based on now. So, so it's kind of this reflective kind of consciousness that 
you know, has its own motives and it isn't really, um, it doesn't, doesn't really have morals. Uh, it's, it just kind of does its thing. And it, it, it seems like it's, it's testing us like kind of a, you know, experimentation type thing. Like it'll, it'll do things that are, um, that are good. I think, yeah. What, let me see here. Yeah. This, this quote from Tom actually kind of lays it out good, uh, uh, pretty well. Um, what did he say? He says, so I think he's talking about blood. So here, um, and he says, so, uh, to this guy, it's all about Christianity. And he's just like, thank you, Lord. I thank you, Jesus. And I'm so blessed that these lights are here. Uh, now those same orbs are projecting holograms of gray aliens. Uh, the little ones with the big black eyes, I call them bugs. Uh, and you're kind of going, okay, so why are these orbs showing up and downloading into this guy's head when he's in his living room? Um, and then it does a song and dance for him. Maybe it shows an alien. Maybe it cures him or his friend. Um, you know, but on the other side of the world, these orbs are showing up and they're doing really bad stuff to people. There's no good about it. There's no happy Christian tale. So it's kind of, it, it, it fucks with us basically, um, to kind of see what our reaction is, um, at, at any point in time. Uh, it seems like to me. Dude, you laid that out really well. Um, something else that I, I hope people don't get too disturbed by is like, I don't think Klaus or or I or, or shake are placing labels on any of these things. And I hope you guys don't think that we are. Um, I'm just kind of saying what's been said by these people. So you might hear a lot of like rattling off quotes and stuff, but it's simply just to get a better understanding of like what has been said and what we can kind of extrapolate from there and try to think hard about and discuss. Um, what was it? P piggybacking off something Klaus has said, I want to add this quote by Tom DeLong. And I'm not trying to freak anybody out, but this is a quote where we mentioned demons and what we popularly know as demons and its connection to the phenomena. Um, he says, there is a very strong link between what people think demons are from the Bible and other religions and the UFO phenomena. What you have is something that doesn't like man, period, and feels either jealous of or has some sort of plan for what man is to be, end quote. Um, so I, I've, I've constantly seen that in UFO literature is that what these things are is they're like almost probing man's development and while it's in this like larval state. Um, do you guys see that or is like, uh, I don't know, it's just a very bizarre interaction to have with us and like, um, I, I hate the term demon. Even Keel tries to peel back from demon and tries to say, like, we need to, like, update our taxonomy that we use for these things. But, like, what do you think? Yeah, it, it kind of goes with the whole um, with the whole insect thing that, yeah, that Tom talks about where we don't, like, they don't have a consciousness like, um, you know, humans do. They don't, they don't have a, like, a, like a moral thing. Um, and he also says, you know, these insects, I actually found a tweet, uh, the other day that he did, that it didn't seem like it got that many likes, but he basically, you know, hypothesized, you know, what would an insect look like if it evolved for millions of years and no one touched it? Um, like 
and it and it gained an intelligence, um, you know, kind of like us, but it didn't have the same kind of moral consciousness that we did. Um, that's that's kind of what I think he's getting at is is this kind of insect type brain that is just like you know poking and prodding and and trying to get a reaction and seeing you know maybe it senses our emotions in a way and it, it you know can can feed off of it probably maybe not i don't know but um and the the other thing yeah the the worshiping their own technology um and in that tweet he also said would they be able to build a craft you know like like these ufos and um he he says they, they they worship their own technology and then they're trying to and this is also in secret machines where uh the quote is they're trying to guide us in their image they're trying to make man in their image um which is kind of related to these crashes these saucer crashes um saying that they're kind of like gifts to to get us to worship our own technology just like they do if they, you know, crash a saucer and then, you know, we get this advanced technology and we become obsessed with it. And then we're on, now we're on social media all the time. And it's basically a hive mind, which is what he says, you know, this, this consciousness is a hive mind that they have. Um, so it's kind of, they're pushing us in the direction that they, that they are in essentially by, by gifting us certain technologies. And, um, it's kind of leading us to, to be what they want us to be, uh, which is like them. And then think about the pushback of like, that's not the only force that seems to be at play here. So while one of these forces keeps being described as demonic and dark and disturbing and people uh, can't sleep at night and they're paralyzed with fear um, they also delve into in with a fire within the crop circle phenomena and how it seems to be a creative intelligence interacting with humanity that might have this sort of non-interventionist policy in our evolution, much, much the opposite of what the uh, lower end of the spectrum has in store for humankind and what humans are to be. Um, this one radiates our crops and weird designs and flattens them into artistic patterns. And usually people report having beneficial uh, harvests after these circles appear in their crops. And uh, it's just very bizarre that like one of them is very open-ended and leaves us for our own development and like trying to become a peacefaring culture on our own. Um, and the other one seems to be very seductive and like, um, uh, fear-based you know is like uh the the, the cattle mutilations and the uh the fear-based like abductions and and uh that type of phenomena is something that like truly changes families and it, it shakes I'm, I'm sure there's people in this room who, who have gone through these things or seen these types of events and it seems like sociologically there's like multiple layers to these experiences and what they do to communities when a member of their community has experienced some of these things, you know? So there's like, it's not only the person, the individual level, but it's also like the sociological level once they come back to their friends and families and churches and whoever, whatever groups they belong to and try to explain this and contextualize it, 
it's, it just goes, it begs the question of like how many of these events are happening and how many of these people have we just called crazy? Yeah. And I'll, I'll actually read this one, one small part about, about that. Uh, essentially, um, this, uh, uh, what is it? The sheriff is investigating a cattle mutilation. Um, and then a CIA guy, I, I guess, pulls up and, uh, you know, says, says he'll, he's going to take them to another site, uh, where, you know, there's crop circles. And he asks them, you know, do you feel something different at, at this site compared to, you know, the farm where the cattle mutilations happened? And, um, so, and this is what, the guy asks, you know, what are you trying to say here? Um, you know, are the cattle mutilations and crop circles coming from similar but different sources with different agendas? And the CIA, uh, this is the quote, CIA guy says, um, different agendas, different plans, a wholly different sense of who we are and what we are worth. We don't know for sure, but that's what we think. And until we know where we stand with them, both of them, whatever they are and wherever they come from, we need to be very careful what we say. Uh, he goes, I'll drive you to the nearest bus station now, uh, put you in a hotel. Um, you'll enjoy your retirement and you'll say nothing because I think you understand that talking will only accelerate whatever is coming. And we as a people, maybe as a planet, need to be ready. So that's kind of scary. <laughs> but uh, go ahead. I was going to say you could, you could say that they were trying to help because remember in the book they were pointing them to Crete which is where they needed to go, but they weren't, they hadn't quite caught up to what they were trying to tell them. Yeah, uh, that's, that's true. Yeah. The, um, the crop circles that they were looking at while they're, while they're saying this was, uh, is basically coordinates on, on, on Crete. And hopefully, you know, we get some, we, hopefully we get the fucking third book soon. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I had read, this was like when I first came to Twitter, so it's been like a year already now. Um, I had read somebody had talked to Hartley, and Hartley said the third book was ready, but it got shelved. So I think Tom shelved it for some reason. Um, so it, it's either revealing too much, or they're trying to play it with the movies or something. I don't know, but I know we've been ready for a long time. Well... I, I'll say as a big fan of Peter Lavenda, I've been trying to DM him and tag him in tweets and be like, when's book three coming out? When's book three coming out? And he said similar things about the uh, the nonfiction book three. Um, he said that like, this has to do, it's God's man and war. And each edition has a different like aspect of the phenomenon's uh, relationship with mankind and mankind's development. And that third edition war that they're writing, I'm sure that there's implications in our current events that they don't really want people discussing right now in those books. That's that's what I'm guessing, um, just as a fan of them, because they're going to probably be discussing the phenomenon's influence and like the historical precedent that's been set. As far as like even our myths go, like it seems like the phenomenon may be taking side in some of these wars. Um, so I don't know exactly what that does when people are aware of that or how we even would confirm something like that. Um, but it is very bizarre to me. And uh, there is one, there's, I don't know which podcast it was, but Luis Elizondo was on there talking about 
the they I, apparently ATIP had been talking to people at the Vatican, and they were telling Elizondo stories of like the Roman sold or Roman army being backed by a floating Roman shield, and they were just saying it very matter of factly, like these things are aiding in their in their battles. So like. Uh, I don't know if that relates to the Foo Fighters that we see in World War II, and if maybe these things have been in front of us for a very long time and we're just not really noticing them. I know uh, apparently we didn't know what the Foo Fighters were. The Germans thought that they were some American technology. We thought they were some Japanese or German technology. And come to find out, a lot of those fireballs came to be unexplained. Um, So it's very difficult. And there's the, the nuclear connection, too, is like, um, yeah, we're, we're in a very sensitive place right now militarily. So like, I wouldn't doubt it if they want to pump the brakes on a couple of these books or the aspects of the books. Yeah, I'll just, uh, um, you can just guess where this came from, but I'm just going to say a sentence. Uh, life forms here competing over man and man itself is the battlefield. So that, uh, yeah, <laughs> pretty relevant. I wouldn't even know where to start. <laughs> um, so you, y'all are, y'all were talking about the consciousness connection with book two, with the swarm and the other intelligence. Um, do y'all want to go into the genetic modification um, or the abnormality? When you see, I, I'm two thirds of the way through the book. Like the, I mean, this is like the sixth or seventh time or more that I've read it. But I'm at the part where Tamika sitting down with Doctor Verspasian at Quantico. Um, but so you see that he did something with Alan and Barry, but we don't know what yet. But they both are explained, or they're both displaying some sort of psi capabilities. But then you see that Tamika, when she came in contact, when they came in contact with the ta- the tablet from Jersey Stern, um, that I believe, was it, was it Sumerian? But when they came in contact with that tablet, with that alien technology, something about that technology changes our DNA and our consciousness. Yeah, and... Um yeah, I'm actually staring at this right now, um, where Tamika is saying, uh, she, you know, they're taking, taking an infant and messing with the basic building blocks of her existence and adding what some grotesque insect trait, some leaning toward a hive mind that would link her to other similarly violated people. So that's kind of, um, it's, it's this hive mind mentality not mentality, but this concept um, where there's something about DNA and kind of this hive mind telepathy, um, you know, uh, and something to do, yeah, with, with, with your blood basically. And it also ties in kind of with, with the, uh, what was it? The air, the air force program. Um, it was like a there was a deadline article that about a book that's coming out. Um and what was the guy's name? I think it was like Scott Anderson or something. Yeah, yeah Scott Andrews. Andrews, yeah. And um 
Elizondo tweeted about this and he said, you know, this, this, this is a hundred percent real or something like that. And it's essentially this, uh, this guy was taken out of school, um, like a week out of the year. And, uh, he, he didn't remember any of it. And, um, it, it's basically kind of the same thing as secret machines. I can't really explain it right now. I'm going to got my wires crossed, but an interesting note, uh, Scott Andrews agent is Dan Ferrer, which is also the same agent that reps Lou Elizondo for his book. So, yeah. I believe that the all of it Simon and Schuster, even the Secret Machines books, if I'm correct, are also Simon and Schuster. I didn't pick up on that, but you might be right. I'd have to go back and look. Yeah, the Andrews one is an interesting one. This guy is saying that, uh, if I'm correct, he said his parents put him in this program. And the, this program was promising them like a future career um that's gonna like help the child and later in its life um and he reported having all these strange occurrences like um that he had like miraculous healings take place is that correct yeah and remote viewing and 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 stuff like that um like he it was he came back from a uh from a tour or a mission or something and he was like got extremely sick and then like instead of succumbing to it i guess he like did meditation or something and it kind of like triggered something in him um and uh yeah it's very similar to uh alan's story alan and barry and secret machines and it's um it's like it's really similar actually and it's kind of freaky yeah so it's it's like the anomalous health incidents but instead of injury it, it ended up being a benefit for him, I guess. Uh, one of the real interesting things about kind of just a side note on what you guys are discussing is like uh, that guy we mentioned earlier, John Alexander, he's given interviews with Jeffrey Mishlove and they were talking about how they were finding people for these remote viewing programs. And they were saying that they were finding people uh, initially that were having or had had near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences and had reported those things and they were pulling those people to the side and they seemed like those people were more apt to those like psychic experiences um so it's just very curious to me i wonder what the like underlying factor is and i'm curious later on when we like uh ask you guys questions and stuff i'm curious what astral's take on that is of like um, how they, who, it, there's two fields of thought that people are born psychic and some are more, more psychic than others. And then there's other people that think that something you could train like a martial art. Um, so it's just very curious to me, the names involved with these things and the programs they're involved with. Um, yeah, apparently that was one of the, the, uh, like vetting processes as they were finding the viewers was they would find people who had had near death experiences and, uh, out of body experiences or things related to that, like big, large traumas that they had to undergo. And their, I guess their brains were more like open to experience in these side phenomena. One other thing I wanted to bring up, um, that, that Tom said, like you pointed me to Garrett that I hadn't really heard before was where he said that um 
was it? Uh, that UFOs are interested in our in our nuclear technology, not because of the danger, um, you know, to the planet, but because of how it might affect our DNA. Is that is that right? Yeah, that pretty much nailed. That's it. pretty much it. Yeah, uh, that's. I, I don't even know what the fuck to think about that. That's crazy. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that ties into uh, a little bit of what they were discussing in the nonfiction books with Peter Lavenda and the concepts of what these pyramids were and what these small G gods might have been doing with them. What function did they serve? Um, and the, one of the things that Lavenda and DeLong, one of the hypotheses that they present is that. Uh, the pyramids were resurrection chambers for these creatures. Um, and that these things were, maybe they weren't immortal, but to the humans living their lifetimes, their great grandparents were living under this thing's rule. So it was immortal, you know? So the myths kind of may be building from there. I do know they mentioned that Sumerian kings, when we look at the Sumerian king tablets, it's still unexplained to this day, but the earliest Sumerian kings, if you look at their clay tablets, they say that they were living thousands upon thousands of years. Um, so it could have been that these things, whatever they were, these small G gods were using the pyramids to prolong their lives to extraordinarily long periods of time. If they had as high technology that they were worshiping um, to that level, they were likely uh, altering their DNA these myths talk about them incorporating with human gene pools. Um, so it's not out of the question to think that humankind may have been some sort of genetic stock for this small G God group. Yeah. I remember we were talking about that and, um, and then, it, it, and then I was kind of wondering if there was, you know, in exchange for their technology, uh, some sort of breakaway, civilization was attempting to help them you know fix their fucking dna like <laughs> i don't know man this, it, this can go in so many directions uh sorry shake i saw you're on mute you're good um yeah no i was gonna say it, it's the same thing with like the bible the bible um i think it's in the old testament I, i'm not religious at all so i don't really know um but they list like the lifespan of of people and the lifespan is hundreds of years and they still haven't really kind of made that work for today how you know how they lived hundreds of years allegedly um but it kind of yeah. in too with the the end of book two right you remember uh the the one that's helping jennifer and she's talking about how their timeline and their their lifespan is different and how they perceive time differently yeah i was actually just talking about that with Garrett trying to figure out if those were the small G gods and then the other faction is kind of like the hive mind. Um, but you know, it's impossible to tell cause it, I, you know, again, hopefully the third book fucking clarifies some of that. Um, but yeah, that, yeah. And that whole, uh, I reread that whole section with, with Jennifer and the, in the fairy ring. Um, Oh God. It's, it's so crazy. Um, but yeah, definitely check out the book if you haven't. There's <laughs> a lot in there. Yo, and to kind of comment on some a comment Shake made that is relevant to this about the Bible, if you do read the Bible, 
Abraham in the Bible reportedly lived hundreds and hundreds of years, and he is a Sumerian. Um, they say that he hails from like Ur or Uruk or some uh, Sumerian land. So like um, the precedent is even set in the Bible that Abraham is a Sumerian. People could look that up themselves. And he supposedly lived hundreds and hundreds of years. It wasn't until after the flood where it seems like humankind's age, according to the Bible, I don't necessarily believe this, um, but apparently mankind's age was adjusted after that uh, flood of Noah to about 120 years. Um, and then ever since, it's just kind of been the, the hand we've been dealt. But there is a precedent for what you've been saying biblically, um, because Abraham did apparently live hundreds of years, and it seemed like there were a couple times where like the age range of mankind was adjusted a few times. It's very bizarre. Dude, you're, you were so dead on with that 120 number, because um, I know that right now when they're they're studying extending the human lifespan and geneticists have looked at like our telomeres which are what denotes um our natural lifespan and typically like they say even if we even if we figure out how to make us live longer um and we don't die of any disease or anything like that that they think the max genetic age for humans is 120 130 like that's the max that we'll ever be able to live without creating an artificial body Damn, dude, that's so crazy. Yeah, the one other thing I wanted to kind of talk about was uh, language. Because um, the second book starts off with uh, essentially, um, they basically say that, uh, well, these tablets are essentially used to, to push human um, civilization along in certain directions and um in the yeah the first first chapter of the second book is basically these these beings gave humanity language and um i don't know i just was wondering what you guys thought about that because language is kind of the basis of of how we kind of sprung to the top of the food chain you know seventy thousand years ago that's that's kind of um what what I forget his name, but he wrote he wrote this book *Sapiens*, um, and it's it's actually really good. And he dates you know seventy thousand years ago as what what he calls the cognitive revolution, and um, that's basically when you know language started helping us you know plan and determine past, present, and future, and you know basically imagination let us like game out. Um, you know, situations beforehand, uh, rather than just reacting to everything. And, um, that, that's kind of what gave humanity, uh, the edge over the other species. And, um, if, you know, if language wasn't, was given to us by, by something else, um, that kind of, uh, it's kind of important. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, the the thing that, in in terms of if we're talking about the myths, the one that sticks out in terms of language is the Tower of Babel story, where mankind was given all these separate languages, and uh, they were trying to build this tower. They had already had the great flood of Noah, 
and mankind was trying to build this tower up and uh, actually living live amongst the gods. Um, historically, there's different precedents for what the Tower of Babel was, even if it even existed, what it was for. Um, I know Herodotus wrote a very uh, interesting like excerpt that John Keel puts in his book, The Eighth Tower, and it's kind of like the reason he titles it The Eighth Tower. Um, he says that like essentially that this this series of towers was adorned with golden beds that women would lay by and gods would come and visit the women that was one of the purposes of the tower of babel i've heard the the point was after god or yahweh or jehovah destroyed the tower of babel in the old testament mankind's languages were scattered and we were kind of confused and had to like pick up from scratch right um and when we have these giant cataclysm events in the bible i don't i don't know if these things are indications of like is a great flood an indication that like uh a, a civilization that was there before got washed away is that what these types of myths indicate um that's just me being speculative um but the the babel myth is very bizarre and it begs the question of like why these people even created this myth in the first place. Um, what, what do you guys think of the Babel myth if you're familiar with it, and like how do you think that intersects with uh, secret machines? Dude, I thought the Babel myth. I thought they all spoke the same language, and it was when they tried to to when they aspired to reach the heavens is when they got struck down and, and scattered. Yes. Um, so kind of the opposite of the tablet. That's kind of interesting. I'd never heard about the whole bed with the women. That that's kind of the whole Nephilim thing though, right? Oh, absolutely. Like the angels are breeding with, with the human women and they create the hybrid race. Um, absolutely. And that's not just in the Bible that you see that. That's in other myths as well. Like in even in the Greek myths, you can see that like the original, for those of you who don't know, um, Plato lays it out. It, I believe it's in his, his series, uh, Critias or Critias. Um, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but he talks pretty extensively about how Atlantis was set up. And he says that the first 10 rulers of Atlantis were the offspring of Poseidon and his human mortal wife, Cleito. And their offspring were the first, they were five sets of twins. And they said that they were the first 10 rulers of Atlantis. Um, now, that is just one example of a Greek god. They said that Hermes also had mortal wives. Zeus had mortal wives. Like, and they talk about that like, I, I don't, it's not as if they have any reason to make those things up. Um, and that's coming from me, an atheist. It's just very bizarre. Even the way the Greeks write about them, they talk about it very matter-of-factly that these beings were involved in their daily lives. So, um, yeah, I think the way that these myths are set up, the they absolutely indicate that there was some sort of like funny business going on between these small G gods and human beings, or at least the, the women. Yeah, one thing that you brought up um, previously, Garrett, that, that really is interesting to me is how is how pharaohs masquerade as these gods. Um, they masqueraded as these gods, um, and I think you kind of had a, had a theory on that. If you want to elaborate on, yeah, um, and you guys can definitely, I, I would say, check out my Substack because I wrote about specifically this and like what John Keel has written about this and like how this has kind of shuffled around throughout time. 
Um, the way Kiel lays it out, he says that around 5,000 BC or so, we were inundated with a swarm of these, what he called God Kings or small G gods. And he says that the stories of uh, uh, the, the Vedas and ancient Egypt and ancient Greece talk about their rule. And then up until about 600 BC or so, that was pretty much what mankind had was that type of ultra terrestrial. And at about 600 BC, there was a man named Zoroaster and Zoroaster was talking to entities. He was talking to an entity named the Hora Mazda, and it kind of created the foundation for uh, angels and demons, these entities he was talking with um, around 600 BC. Um, and I know this is kind of getting a little scattered. Uh, Zoroaster was living in Persia. Um, unbeknownst to Zoroaster, across the world in India, there was a man named Buddha, and he was alive at this time. And he didn't under he didn't know about Zoroaster, but he was also preaching a similar philosophy as him. Um, also, Daniel from the Old Testament was alive in this time, around six hundred to five hundred BC. He was talking to entities or the quote unquote watchers or the sons of God. Um, the chronology lines up to where these people, these individuals, all over the world were changing the phil philosophical landscape of the world and around 600 bc it had appeared that we had entered a new age and they started prophesizing about or prophes prophesizing about the future messiah was going to come and it was going to kind of shuffle up the way humanity thought and uh the way humanity worshipped specifically and then they have the birth of christ and they say that that shifted people away from worshiping this cruel Old Testament God that's punishing these humans and trying to exterminate everybody. And Kiel said that Christ's role was to lure people away from worshiping that and start worshiping what Confucius and Buddha and Zoroaster were preaching about was this supermind, this one cosmic connection that we have this underlying love um, and uh, it was just kind of a, a large reversal from what human, humankind had been worshiping for a long time. Um, so that shuffled stuff up. And then pretty soon after that, you had Muhammad switch it up and say that, no, Allah is the only one true God. So he's, he, the way Kiel lays it out is that since 5000 BC or so, these things have been battling back and forth with faith to faith making these religions, finding these bizarre men. Uh, if we take our most recent history, look at guys like Joseph Smith, L. Ron Hubbard. These are the prophets of our like most recent religions. These are men who are claiming to have been visited by entities. And look at what we've done to them or what, what has happened to them is like they, they become drunk with power. Uh, Joseph Smith tried to run for president. He spawned the first third party that America ever had, the anti-Masonic party. Um, he had a whole plan in place that he was going to become president. Uh, America might fall to some sort of civil war or some fallout, and the, the Mormon church was going to be there to pick up the pieces. And that's how a lot of these individuals are thinking. And uh, yeah, it just points to the problem of current day of like, what happens when somebody gets visited by one of these things and they think the way L. Ron Hubbard thinks, or they think the way that Joseph Smith thinks, or even worse, maybe they think the way someone like Kim Jong-un thinks. So it just makes you think like, uh, what are the implications? Uh, the historical precedent, I hope I explained it okay, um, but apparently up until about 1848, 
um, ultra terrestrials had some sort of uh, say in humankind. And then he says in 1848, that we had a whole wave of revolutions. We had over 50 revolutions worldwide. Um, the Fox sisters in upstate New York and Rochester founded spiritualism. They had a rapping poltergeist in their wall. Um, and w- the way Keel explains it is that the phenomenon changed its frame of reference, kind of like we were talking about earlier and how you were explaining the forest analogy with early humans. And like, it's going to show itself as the forest, uh, the spirit in the forest. Uh, and it's going to be kind of like the frame of reference that's compatible for that particular group of humans. Well, Keel says that happened again in 1848, and it saw that we were beginning an industrial revolution. And by the time it was the late 1800s or so, that's when people started reporting seeing these airships. And it seems like that's when it started pumping out a lot of the technology all around the world. And it took a couple countries some time to catch up to what they were seeing in terms of saucers and discs and stuff. But these things, there, there is a historical precedent and they keep co- coming up in, uh, as far as nowadays goes, like we're hearing about stories of people seeing similar, if not more advanced things. So, um, it makes you wonder if like some of the secrecy is to keep the phenomena from reshuffling its frame of reference and just continually being more advanced than us. Or like maybe it's a little bit of a cat and mouse and that's the whole point. 